You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. Welcome to the Code Red podcast. I am Alan Roth, president of Secure America Now. Our guest today is Christian Whiten. Christian is a frequent expert guest on Fox News and other media outlets. He is the author of Smart Power, and he served in the State Department in several capacities, including as strategic advisor to President Trump's first secretary of state. Christian, thank you for stopping by our podcast. And I want to begin by asking you, is America more or less secure because of the Biden administration's foreign policy? Well, thanks, Alan. Great to be here. You know, I think it's it's pretty clear that the world has gotten a lot more dangerous for the United States since Biden took office just over uh, 100 days ago. In fact, it's amazing how much change has happened. You know, we inherited a situation where Iran was uh, very much on the defensive, um, was uh, deprived of, of capital um, to augment its tyranny at home and export terrorism abroad. China, as well, uh, had been, um, uh, you know, had its relationship with the world completely changed so that finally the United States and others were treating this as the adversary it is. I think Donald Trump was tough on, on Russia, uh, had a unique position towards North Korea and trying something that his predecessors hadn't, which um, you know, at least had uh, resulted in several years where North Korea had not tested uh, an intercontinental ballistic missile or a nuclear weapon. Now you have a situation where the Biden administration is trying to appease Iran, uh, something that will undoubtedly um, unleash billions of dollars uh, to return to that regime uh, and free up its nuclear program. Um, China, I think, knows that it has the United States over a barrel because the Biden administration is determined to have some sort of climate agreement that China uh, you know, must be a part of, even though it's unlikely to comply with. Um, and Russia as well just sort of proved that it can cause trouble in its near abroad and that as tough as Biden can talk about that, there's not a lot he can do. So I think it's, it's um, you know, been a change where maybe some people in the salons of old Europe are happy, but our allies that kind of matter the most are concerned. It seemed like uh, the Biden administration's top priority in foreign affairs is to re-engage Iran and again bring to life the Iran nuclear deal that the Obama-Biden administration had negotiated with Iran. Do you think that that makes sense in terms of America's national security? Why is that a good or a bad idea? You know, I think it's bad because, uh, well, for a number of reasons, starting with the fact that the 2015 agreement that they're so determined to get us back into was fundamentally flawed. You've seen news recently that Iran is enriching uranium up to the 60% uranium-235 level, Um, and that's getting very close, well beyond what you need for nuclear reactors for peaceful use, Uh, and it's getting close to what can be be used in a nuclear weapon. Um, And We can argue about why this is happening now, but step back. 
how is it that Iran has this capability? If the 2015 deal put their nuclear program into a bottle, then um, you know how are they able to do this? And the answer is the 2015 deal didn't eliminate their nuclear program; it sanctified it. It also gave them billions of dollars to spend. Um, you know, there's this theology among the Biden people that they just have to undo as much of what Trump did as possible. And again, if they had just looked at this and say, oh, well, you know, uh, we we did negotiate that deal, our predecessors, some of the same people in, in the Biden administration were involved in that 2015 deal. Um, but, you know, Trump made huge breakthroughs, achieving essentially peace between the Arabs and the Israelis, uh, containing Iran. Um, but they just can't do that. And, uh, you know, they're working uh, seemingly day and night now in Vienna to get Iran um, the deal that it wants. And I'm not seeing anything about a change in Iranian conduct, about more disclosure about their nuclear program, giving up those capabilities, ceasing the export of Islamic terrorism, uh, nothing really. One of the major initiatives or changes that has taken place with Iran was, I think, back in March Iran entered into a deal, a $400 billion deal with China. What do you make of that deal, and how do you think that could have repercussions? How would that impact on Middle Eastern politics? Yeah, China has always been, um, you know, <laughs> a uh, unhelpful uh, I wouldn't even call them a partner. They're an adversary in dealing with Iran. They're not the only one. The Europeans, frankly, have not been particularly helpful uh, to past efforts to try and contain and control Iran. But the Chinese, and it, it's funny, you see this administration revert to globalist, or I would say global language about a rules-based order um, that I would argue never existed. But um, you know, China's dealings with Iran, I think, show that it never existed. Um, there are sanctions on Iran that are imposed at the UN that theoretically should apply to China uh, pertaining to Iranian oil. Well, um, China, it's been long known that China uh, buys Iranian oil nonetheless, probably gets a pretty good deal for it, is buying it for below market prices because others are hesitant to buy from Iran. And you know, China has a, a near total lack of hydrocarbons, um, which is why that sort of uh, flow of oil from the Middle East through the Malacca Strait near Singapore to China is, is always a choke point that it's concerned with. It's built pipelines across Burma. Um, and the fact of the matter is that China uh, is just, you know, seems unconcerned with the terrorism that Iran is exporting, um, seems unconcerned with its nuclear program, that it's more of a problem for the United States, for Israel, uh, for the Gulf Arab countries, so is, is willing to, um, you know, help this regime. Uh, one of the uh, huge successes of the Trump administration was what is called the Abraham Accords, in which a majority, if not all, of the Sunni Arab countries made a peace with the state of Israel. Many of them have established permanent official relations with the state of Israel. And if there was a second Trump administration, that those accords would have had an opportunity to take even further hold because these were, in fact, uh, lifelong enemies coming to peace. And 
it was a great accomplishment that they actually signed on the dotted line. What impact do you believe this shift in the Biden administration toward Iran could have on the Abraham Accords and the peace between Sunni nations and the state of Israel. Yeah, I'm very concerned that at a minimum, it's going to remove any momentum. And and there was momentum. I think this, uh, what, you know, that what, what Trump achieved, um, and of course, this took major risks by Israel and, and especially by the United Arab Emirates, who I think was in the driver's seat early. Um, and of course, bringing along other Arab states, Bahrain, Morocco, um, Sudan, and, uh, you know, the, the, the belief was that you would see other countries come along, Oman, and then, of course, uh, the big one, Saudi Arabia, that with the second Trump term, with continued um, emphasis pushing, seeing also that, um, you know, the so-called fabled Arab street did not erupt. You know, for the longest time, the theory was that these, if these governments had dealings with uh, the Israelis and, and turned their back on the Palestinians, um, who are often are governed by terrorists, then it would be the end of these governments. These Arab monarchies would fall. And in fact, you know, John Kerry uh, very uh, haughtily, uh, you know, finger wagging said that there will be no separate peace between Israelis and Arabs, that you must solve the Palestinian issue in order to have any progress. And that's, that was just wrong. I mean, the drivers of instability in the Middle East has been the Iranian regime, first and foremost. Of course, there are others. And, you know, the idea that you had to solve Israel-Palestine, well, no, I think if you solve, frankly, Iran, some of the other problems go away. Anyway, to answer your question, uh, whereas before you had momentum, I say at best now you have stagnation. Um, I, I think Saudi Arabia and other countries are going to wait and see how far the appeasement goes um, toward Iran and, um, you know, uh, and reevaluate the security situation at, at that point, rather than the path they were on before, which was, you know, Iran is in a, um, a place where it's contained and controlled. And, um, you know, it was uh, safe to and prudent to expand ties with Israel, both intelligence, diplomatic and economic. Uh, I saw some reports that actually Saudi Arabia and Iran have in fact been meeting recently, and that these mortal enemies are sitting down and talking, um, uh, I think lends credence to the point that you were making, that we're not sure uh, how much this movement towards Israel and the United States, the Sunni countries are going to tolerate if in fact Iran is the Biden administration's favorite actor in the Middle East. Right. And, and um, this is worrisome. And frankly, this is worrisome under the Obama-Biden administration. And it is once again, even though this administration, this White House, goes through the motions of saying they support our allies and they want to restore alliances. You know, if you look at their actions, what that really means is, is basically uh, to make life safe for diplomatic cocktail parties in old Europe, in Brussels, in Paris, and in Berlin. Um, so they went through the motions in the Pacific. They, you know, uh, Blinken, the Secretary of State, along with the Secretary of Defense, first visited our allies, Japan and Korea, 
But then the real diplomacy happened on the way home when they met the Chinese in Alaska and they got a schooling from the Chinese about how America is supposedly racist. Uh, and they sat on their hands and didn't defend America. And really what they're getting to in the Pacific is trying to cut a deal with China eventually, I think, over climate. Now, when it comes to the Middle East, sort of same situation where, um, you know, this administration seems at best to be indifferent to our fundamentally important allies. Uh, and it's sometimes hostile. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens with Israeli politics and the change of government there, but certainly they're hostile to Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, I think the left in America and, uh, you know, sort of high-minded moralists of, of the human rights movement, hostile to Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince who essentially runs Saudi Arabia. So it's, again, the situation where we seem to be going tougher on our allies the ones that matter most, I mean, Belgium is not going to help us in the Middle East. France, probably not either. Germany, I think we could say not. Saudi Arabia is important. The UAE is important. Israel is the most important. And so you have this, this sort of situation where people, our allies are sort of made to think that they need to cut deals uh, with the bad actors in their region because the United States doesn't have their back. And Saudi Arabia in particular has a somewhat horrifying capacity for pragmatism. After all, they're the ones who backed al-Qaeda in Iraq in the worst days of 2005 and right. 2006 because they saw their interest being challenged. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd be worried about those talks between, between Riyadh and Tehran. Uh, Christian, you are an expert on China and the, Asia, and the politics of Asia. And uh, can you give us an update in terms of the Biden administration's reactions and changes of policy toward China and linking that to the impact those changes are having on the human rights uh, condition or policies of the communist Chinese regime towards Hong Kong. Well, it's, it's a, a situation where I think a lot of people have a bit of naive hope that Biden will be tough on China. Um, you know, even some congressional Republicans say, oh, the Democrats have learned their lesson. Um, after Xi Jinping, uh, the Chinese leader basically explicitly told President Obama in 2015, we won't do any more cyber attacks on America, completely broke that promise. And, you know, with Hong Kong, um, the Chinese made an explicit promise to the British to um, maintain one country, but two systems, a high degree of autonomy for a Hong Kong, the freedoms they had, uh, partial democracy, but absolute rights when it came to uh, the rule of law, the free speech, freedom of religion, etc. And they've... Uh, you know, turn there, they've, they've, they've welched on that, uh, promise very, very significantly. So, um, now the, the, the other, the flip side is that the tariffs that President Trump put on China, the export controls to deprive them of, uh, top of the line semiconductor manufacturing technology, artificial intelligence. Biden has kept those on, but the real question is what is, you know, happen next? That again, they're going to want China's supposed, um, cooperation on climate change or on some, you know, bit of, of global only agreement. And, you know, the expectation is that between 
that and likely cuts to the military that are over the horizon or just on the horizon that this administration will go t- will go soft on on China and certainly is not the outspokenness the toughness you saw from President Trump and former Secretary of State Pompeo who was just and Vice President Pence frankly who were very clear about human rights whether it's in Hong Kong or the Uyghurs and you know Trump was a mixed bag but I think Taiwanese probably were a lot more comfortable with Trump in the White House than with Biden. What about uh, there have been a series of arrests in Hong Kong of democracy uh, supporters? What is the situation uh, as far as the democratic movement within Hong Kong? It's been a stunning change in the last year and in, in recent months. Um, the Legislative Council, which is Hong Kong's democratic body, was always a little bit fake in that, um, you know, just about half or, or fewer of the seats were truly democratically elected. Others were elected from various pro-establishment, pro-Beijing constituencies and civic groups in Hong Kong. But nonetheless, you had a strong voice in the LegCo, even if a minority one, um, for the rights of the people, um, for upholding that joint declaration between the United Kingdom and, and China and the basic law, which is their mini constitution that enshrined most of their rights. Well, um, basically the situation became so tough for those pan-Democrats, as they're called, that they all um, resigned from the Legislative Council. So the Legislative Council now in Hong Kong has gone from sort of a semi-democratic body to more like the People's National Congress on the mainland or, or the Iranian Majlis, for that, for that matter, something where you basically have to already have been passed muster with the, with the central government, even to run for office. And then you have this national security law. So Hong Kong has gone from a place with no political prisoners where um, you could say it's a partial democracy, but anyone could protest. Very easy to get a permit. Um, there were some of the biggest protests every June 4th, which is the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square Massacre in 1989. Um, all of that has gone out the window with this national security law. And for example, Jimmy Lai, the publisher of Apple Daily, that's basically the New York Post of Hong Kong, a tabloid, but one with very um, informative news and uh, unabashedly pro-democracy, pro-American. He's in jail on charges for you know, participating in uh, a protest. So, you know, it's just night and day where the legislature is, is now uh, a rubber stamp. The press is becoming emasculated um, and uh, you know, it's basically becoming just like any other Chinese city. This week, the Financial Times ran a commentary, a story with the headline, Washington shies away from open declaration to defend Taiwan. Uh, the opening of this article says, White House official says shift to strategic clarity would carry downsides in face of China's belligerence towards Taipei. What is the situation? You you had mentioned that the Taiwanese are probably feeling less secure with the Biden administration, but why should Americans care about what is going on in terms of China and Taipei? How can that impact? Uh, the United States of America. Now, there are two or three big ways. The first of all is since our chief adversary in the world 
is the People's Republic of China. Um, you know, Taiwan puts the lie to the very basic reason why the, the PRC, the CCP, I should say, the Chinese Communist Party, rules the mainland. Their whole justification for one party rule is that China, uh, its history was always chaotic, despotic, corrupt, <clears throat> and that, uh, frankly, democracy, as we understand it in the West, doesn't work for Chinese people, ethnically Chinese people. Well, Taiwan and Hong Kong a little bit before uh, recent developments, Taiwan proves that to be incorrect. Um, Taiwan is ethnically Chinese, uh, has been a vibrant democracy for going on um, uh, two decades after graduating from its own one-party sort of uh, capitalist, but one-party rule under the KMT. And it just shows that democracy can work. It, it can work for 23 million Chinese. Yeah, it can work for 1.4 billion Chinese on the mainland. So there's that um, just basically ideological reason we should support this because it causes problems for our chief adversary in the world. But then just from a pure military and geopolitical point of view, if you lose Taiwan, in addition to getting a whole lot of Americans killed, a lot of um, either Taiwanese Americans or, um, or, or, you know, American citizens who are visiting Taiwan and working there, um, you know, if you lose that, you really lose the entire Western Pacific. You'd have countries like Singapore and the Philippines realizing they have to cut deals with China. Um, it would be hugely disruptive to the economy, to world trade, uh, and it would, you know, have ramifications not just in East Asia, which is hugely important for trade, but all the way um, to the uh, to the Middle East. So, um, for that reason, Taiwan is important. But we've always had. Uh, since breaking relations formally in the Carter administration in 1979, had this ambiguity that you mentioned, which I think is actually dangerous. Uh, there have been stories about communist China uh, actually meddling in American domestic politics and uh, definitely uh, spreading their communist ideology at universities. They had, I think recently they changed the name of their Confucius um, Institutes. Can, can you speak a bit about how China is trying to influence Americans, especially young Americans? Sure. And, and I have to say, I, I was uh, bemused in 2016 when there was such a uproar over fairly modest Russian expenditures on social media, um, supposedly to influence our elections. I think the influence was nil. The amount they spent would be less than what it would take to run an ad campaign for a new craft beer in a medium-sized American <laughs> media market, whereas the Chinese have a thoroughly extensive um, system of political warfare in place. As you mentioned, it's on the universities. Sometimes it's through Confucius Institutes. Other times it's been through um, uh, Chinese language programs, uh, other foreign policy programs that involve travel and study in China. Um, then it can also just extend to places like MIT, where you just have um, Chinese expat visiting professors, students, and others who are involved uh, voluntarily or through compulsion uh, in Chinese espionage. Going beyond universities, you have think tanks in Washington, D.C. and New York, where money is uh, from the, the PRC essentially is laundered through Chinese uh, businessmen or other entities, but, you know, basically still trying to sell the soothing 
Kissinger, Hank Paulson tale that China's rise will be peaceful, that if we just make them rich, they'll turn into capitalists, that economic prosperity and security will lead to political liberalism. And none of that has happened. In fact, quite the opposite. But they're still out there um, telling that tale. And then, of course, there are corporations. Corporations, oh, like, let's say, Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola, who are happy to criticize uh, Americans, again, for uh, false claims of racism, but then uh, do things like sponsor the 2022 Olympics, which are going to take place apparently in China, just a couple of hours from where China has large concentration camps of uh, Uyghur Muslims. Um, so it's a comprehensive um, system that uh, involves, as you mentioned, universities, think tanks, other uh, agents of influence, um, again, sometimes useful idiots, sometimes uh, active participants. There, uh, of course, we we shouldn't forget um, uh, the National Basketball Association, which has been a staunch critic of things American and their continued engagement and expansion of activities in communist China. Exactly. And yes, again, you have very key figures in the NBA and it seems like LeBron James, who, um, you know, looks at the United States and, and sees an evil, despotic, racist uh, country, but then sees nothing wrong with the greatest oppressor on planet Earth, which is the Chinese government enslaving not only it's sort of 1.3 billion Han Chinese or nearly that number, but also, you know, various ethnic groups who are um, badly suppressed, the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, um, you know, people who live in Hong Kong, etc. cetera. Uh, the other sports leagues um, also just have dreams of, uh, and this of course affected corporate America more broadly of, oh, you know, you have all these consumers. How can you not possibly be trying to court them? Uh, not realizing that of course, if you have any business success in China, that your technology or, um, you know, your, 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 your method of business will be expropriated by a Chinese partner or the government sooner or later. And then we shouldn't also forget Hollywood. Uh, again, the, the ability to sell a fairly small number, a few dozen films in China has basically put China in the position of censoring American movies. Now, there was one sort of big instance where on Top Gun, the sequel, Tom Cruise's jacket in the first movie, had uh, a Taiwanese flag on it. In the second one, it was going to have that, and the Chinese objected, and that disappeared. You know, that's just one little one-off thing. Um, more broadly, you know, you're not going to see a lot of movies about Tibet like you used to in the 90s and early 2000s, or the Cultural Revolution in China, which killed millions. You're really not going to see anything that's critical of the CCP, but you'll, you're sure going to see things that are critical of the USA. Well, thank you, Christian Whiten. This has been an illuminating uh, analysis, both of Iran, the Middle East, and China. And we look forward to seeing you uh, on Fox News and other media outlets uh, telling the truth about what's going on in the international arena. And uh, we thank you for stopping by the Code Red podcast, and we invite you back anytime you wish to uh, engage with us again. Thank you, Alan. Always great to talk. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to the Code Red Podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date and be the first to hear about our future podcast. You can also find and subscribe to the Code Red Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube.